watch a lot of movies, but it sounds like it from today. You remember the movie City Slickers? About the, the dude ranch and the, guy who goes, the guys who go out and pretend that they're cowboys. And the old main character says to the, the lead, remember there is just one thing. And you need to figure out what this one thing is. Well, that's what Jeremiah is saying here. There's just one thing, and this is what I call to mind. And so then our, our verses begin. Verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The steadfast love. The Hebrews had a word. It was chesed. And it's a word that's hard to translate. In the old King James Version, it used to be, be translated loving kindness. Here it's translated steadfast love. A dictionary I looked at said, it is the extravagant, consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, unrestrained, furious love of God the Father. Listen to those words again. Extravagant, consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, unrestrained, furious love of God our Father. It was chesed that God had for the world it caused him to send his only begotten son. An unrelenting love for his people. And so he says this chesed the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The mercies of God never come to an end. The, the Hebrew word for mercy here is related to a womb. And so what it's really pointing to is kind of, of love that a mother has for her child. It's a love that never comes to an end. There will always be that bond between mother and child. And so God's mercy never comes to an end. It's new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Sounds like one of the hymns we sing, isn't it? Great is thy faithfulness. This is where it comes from. And so he says, my hope is in God because the Lord is my portion. God is fully present. Even when we've lost everything else, he is mine. And I am his. And so I have hope. There is no situation, no matter how bad it might seem, that is beyond the hope which God gives us, especially in his son Jesus. In this next section, then, look at verses 25 through 28, and I want you to look at the faith words, the words that describe 
the relationship that this man has with God. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with incense, insults. These verses urge us to wait. To wait patiently. Not frantically, not hysterically, not running from one thing to another, but just to sit and wait patiently. And to wait humbly. Sometimes we're the ones who need to put our mouth into dust, or as we say, we're the ones who need to eat some dust once in a while. In our humility before God, we need to submit patiently to suffering, and in the midst of our suffering, seek to know what God's will for us really is. It's in times that seem hopeless, times of despair and complaining and whining, when it's our faith that's going to see us through. Faith, which is waiting and seeking and waiting quietly for God to reveal his will to us. That's the first step in wholeness and renewed hope. And so we come to verse 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And once again, there's that word chesed, steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Our God never rejects us forever. He will not cast us off forever. He does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. It's not part of God's heart. God's heart is all about this, this love and mercy and compassion. And yet we've all experienced times, haven't we? Where we feel as though we're being punished. Last week, and in worship this morning, we heard the words of Job, and how Job kept asking, Lord, why is this happening to me? Lord, I've been good. How can you allow all this trouble to come to me? Lord, did you send this to me? Lord, are you trying to teach me something? And so we come back to, to other verses of Scripture. You know, scripture interprets Scripture and let's listen to some of the words of others who have been suffering. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we might live before him. What's going on in times of suffering? 
Does God ever send things that seem like punishment that has a deeper purpose for us? Is he trying to teach us, to, to discipline us, as the word we'll see in the next verse? To lead us more closely to him? Again, we heard in the, in the Bible verse for, for today, uh, Job saying at the end, uh, Lord, before I had seen you, before I'd heard of you, but now I've seen you. Before we had a relationship, but now through all that I've suffered, I come to understand you more deeply than ever before. I love you more dearly through what I've suffered. And now my faith is stronger than it's ever been before. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Where you've suffered, and it was hard. But remaining steadfast in faith and putting your trust in God's Mercy and grace, you came through it. He brought you through it. And you were stronger than ever before. How about another verse? Hebrews chapter 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Peaceful fruit of righteousness for people who have been trained by the hardships they've had to endure. Or there's the words of 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved through various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think of the refiner's fire. How do they purify gold? How do they make it more valuable? They heat it up until it gets to a point where the gold begins to melt and all the impurities are burned out of it. Does God operate that way? Does he turn up the fire in your life at times to burn out impurities, to make your faith stronger, to bring you closer to him? The word of, of this passage is that there's one thing in life that really matters, and that is the steadfast love of the Lord, his mercies, his faithfulness to you. And so there is no situation in your life, none, ever, 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 that is hopeless through faith in him. Let's pause for a moment. Any of you have questions or thoughts or maybe you've had experiences where you've seen your faith grow through something that you've had to endure? Nobody? All right. Let's move to the second one. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9 and 13 through 15. Dr. Robbie always says, don't just read me a passage of scripture, read it to me in its context. And so we need to read this passage from 2 Corinthians also in its context. And the context is a collection for the poor people back in Jerusalem. 
Remember, St. Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. But the church really got its birth in Jerusalem among the Jewish Christians. And then there was the persecution, where Jewish family members turned against those who were converting to Christianity. And the Roman authorities began to come down on the Christians. And so there were all kinds of hardships that were being endured by the Christians back at the mother church in Jerusalem. And so in, in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul first went to meet with Peter, James, and John about his work among the Gentiles, they said there's just one thing you need to remember, one thing. Remember the poor. Take care of the poor. And so that was always part of Paul's ministry. When he wrote to the Galatians, or to, to the Romans in uh, chapter 15, he said, at the present time I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, which is where Corinth was, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And so St. Paul is saying to the Romans, I'm bringing along with me on my way to see you offerings that I brought along from Corinth. And these people in Corinth have the resources, and so they can provide the material blessings, and the people in Jerusalem, the mother church, can provide some of the spiritual blessings, and in the process, the whole church will be built up. So in a sense, he's saying, let's do this as a, as a duty. We owe those people in Jerusalem something because of the faith that they'd shared with us. As we're going on this morning, we're going to talk about motivation. What motivates people to give? Can we lay on people a sense of duty? You have so much, it is your duty to give. Hold on to that question for a minute. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He's talking about this offering again. And there, the Corinthians were ready. and They were eager. They were going to get involved in this, this offering. But they had some questions about how we give. Is there a system by which we need to offer our gifts to God. And so in 1 Corinthians, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Apparently, St. Paul is saying this needs to be systematic. It needs to be regular. It needs to be every week. It's not about what's left over at the end of the week. It's about what you've got in your pocket at the beginning of the week. You know, there's an old expression that says, 
The good news is that God has all the money in the world. He doesn't need your offerings. The bad news is it's still in your pocket. Well, here he's saying, you got the resources now. Do this systematically. Every week, you start the week off and, and you put aside some money for these poor people. Every week, systematically. In our text then, in 2 Corinthians 8, St. Paul talks about Titus. And how a year before St. Paul wrote these words, Titus had already begun the work of gathering this to collection together from the Corinthians. But remember, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there had been a falling out. They weren't real happy with Paul, and so Paul writes kind of a heavy-duty letter that says, you got to get some things straightened out. Now, Paul is concerned that maybe these people were so upset with him that they weren't going to give anything for the offering. How many times have we heard something like that? I don't like the pastor. I don't like what he's doing. And so I'm going to withhold my offerings until he gets things straightened out. Or until he leaves. We'll starve him out. As a district president, I heard that all the time. We're just not going to give anything until that pastor's gone. We're going to cut his salary. We're going to cut our offerings. We're not going to contribute until that pastor's out of here. Uh, Paul is concerned about that kind of thing here. You guys are upset with me, but don't let your thoughts about me influence the offering for the poor people in Jerusalem. And so as you can tell, this section is all about giving. How do we give? Why do we give? What's our motivation for giving? And Paul says once again, it's all about the grace of God that's been shown to you. So our text begins. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. It isn't motivated by guilt. It isn't motivated by a sense of duty. This is motivated by the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit's work. It is all about grace. I want you to know about the grace of God and the grace of giving. Now, the churches of Macedonia that he's talking about are the congregations of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. These were all Gentile Christians who, as he'll say, gave very generously, which is kind of ironic because as Gentile Christians, they probably wouldn't have even been welcomed at the table among some of the hard-line people in Jerusalem. They were Gentiles, and they needed to become Jews before they could be good Christians. And yet, it wasn't about themselves. They were looking at the needs of those people in Jerusalem who may or may not love them. It's about the grace of God. So verse 2 begins, In a severe test of affliction, 
Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this grace of God, this act of grace. Let's talk about some of the words that are here. The abundance of joy. God loves a cheerful giver. It's the next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, you might say God loves a hilarious giver. Somebody who does this out of pure joy. I visited a, an African immigrant church in Philadelphia some years ago. And it was about a two-hour-long service. These people came, and the preachers just went on and on. There were more than one preacher. But it came time for the offering. You know how they gathered the offering in this African church? They danced it in. Every person came forward, and the drums were pounding, and they were waving their gifts, and they brought them and laid them before the altar. Do we ever think of our offering time as a time of great joy where we can just dance our offering into God? The Lord loves a cheerful, hilarious giver. He talks about generosity. They had a wealth of generosity. They didn't have anything. They were extremely poor people, but they had a wealth of generosity. They gave beyond their means. There was extreme poverty, but they gave. We think of the widow's might. Remember how Jesus stood in the, in the, the atriums of the, of the temple, and he watched as the people brought their alms? And the rich people came in, and they made a big point of giving their offerings but there was this one widow who just had two half pennies and she brought them in and placed them into the offering. And Jesus pointed at her. There's the one who gave. She gave all she had. She was a generous giver. These people, he says, begged for the favor. They weren't motivated by a sense of guilt. They weren't motivated by a sense of duty. They begged for the favor. What was so different about them than most of the people that we know? And Paul lays it out in um, verse 5. Didn't happen the way we expected, but first they gave themselves to the Lord. It wasn't about their money. It was about their hearts. First, 
They gave themselves to the Lord and to us. And then they gave this tremendous offering. Again, God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Everything. Verse 8, I say this not as a command. So it's not under compulsion. It's not because you have to do this. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. It wasn't compulsion. It was a way of expressing their faith, of responding to God and his grace and all that he'd given to them. And he holds out before them the example of the Lord Jesus. He was rich. He was the son of God with all power and glory in heaven and on earth. And yet Philippians 2 said he made himself nothing, nothing. And became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. There's the example, folks. You can't outgive God because He gave His only Son for you. There's the example He holds before us. Verse 13 For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, and their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left, and whoever gathered little had no lack. I don't think Paul was really trying to shame them into giving, but it, it's, it's pretty close to shaming them. Now, I want you to think about these poor Macedonians and how they gave, well, maybe you ought to be given a little bit more yourself. And so he talks about their fair share. Everybody has a share. Everybody has something to give. Give what you can. In the Constitution of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, there is the very first words that talks about the purpose for forming a synodical union. Why, why do we belong to a synod? Why do we belong to a district? And, and Walther in his wisdom talked about so that the diversities of gifts might be used for the common profit. No one congregation can send missionaries all over the world. But together, more than 6,000 congregations can send missionaries to all corners of the earth. No one congregation or no one Christian by himself or herself could, could pay for a seminary and train future pastors. Or a Concordia University system. But together we can. No one church by itself can provide all the aid that's needed in, in times of disasters throughout the world. But together we can. 
And so Walther, in his wisdom, in, in organizing the synod, says God has given a diversity of gifts to be used for the common profit. And all of us benefit when we're taking all of the blessings that we've been given and using them for the sake of the kingdom. That's what St. Paul is saying here. We've got a diversity of gifts, and, and the Corinthians had the means. This was a wealthy congregation. He's saying, give so that your blessings can be used to strengthen the body completely. Giving is, is a faith issue. It's a grace issue. It's a spirits issue. And every one of us has been richly blessed. And so the word of God for us in this passage is, see that you excel in this grace of giving. The grace of giving. Not the duty. Not an obligation. The grace which God shows to you. Any, any thoughts? That ought to generate a few questions or at least a few comments about why we give, when we give, how we give. Jan? Right. Well, as to the first part, you know, he says, complete what you had started, what you had been eager about beforehand. Well, remember he wrote to the Romans saying that they were eager about this, but then there had been this falling out. And some of them were thinking, well, why should we support Paul and, and all of those people? We're not going to do it. And so Paul is saying, complete what you started. Now, the, the second part again, Jan, run that by me. I think he's talking about proportionate giving there. That not all of us are multi-billionaires. The, the person who's on a pension can't be expected to give the same as the multi-billionaire. You give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Other thoughts? All right, then let's look at the gospel. Mark 5, 21 through 43. And this is a, a BOGO. This is buy one, get one free. There are two stories that are wrapped into one. And you've got to wonder, why would St. Uh, Mark tell us this story? And, and then maybe he could have gone to the other story. But he tells us this story, goes to that story, and then comes back to finish this story. So what's going on here? Well, actually, this section of the Gospel of Mark has four miracles that Jesus performed. In chapter 4, the Gospel for today, talks about the stilling of the storm. And the message from Mark is, Lord has power over all creation, even over the wind and the waves. He merely speaks a word, and he calms everything. 
Well, Jesus is on the sea as we hear today, and he's on his way over to the land of the Gerasenes. And when he arrives there, he's met by a man who's possessed, not by just one demon, but by a legion of demons. And by a word of command, he drives out the demons into a herd of pigs, and 2,000 pigs die. This poor man must have been infested with a couple thousand demons. So Jesus goes across the lake to the land of the Gentiles and drives out demons. He has power over the devil and his minions. Now in, in the text that we'll look at today, he's talking about Jesus' power over even death. So here we have the third and the fourth miracles of this section of, of miracles in the Gospel of Mark. Now, why are they connected? Why doesn't he tell one story and then the other? Well, we know it happened this way, but, but why does he confuse the two? And so there must be some connection, some things that are similar and some things different that tie these two stories together. On the one hand, Jairus is a, a wealthy man. He's an insider. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And then there's this poor widow who, because of her menstrual bleeding, was an outcast. She, society looked down upon her. She couldn't have social contact. We've got two different kinds of people here. Both stories involve ritual uncleanness. To touch a, a woman in, in menstrual bleeding made a person unclean and unworthy to be in worship. To touch a dead body made a person unclean and unworthy to be in worship. So you've got similarities about cleanliness. The woman was afflicted for 12 years. And the little girl that we'll talk about was 12 years old. In both there are competent authorities. You know, there is a doctor who says, we've done all that we can do. There is no healing for this little girl. She's going to die. And the, the doctors had ripped off, taken all of her money, but they hadn't been able to help her a bit. So even though the experts say one thing, Jesus has something completely different to say about their situation. Both Jairus and the woman obviously have great faith in Jesus. Both the little girl and this woman are called daughter, a term of endearment, an inclusion in the family. In both words, Mark used the Greek word sozo. You are healed, literally, you are saved. So, so in both of these contexts, it's, it's not just about a healing miracle or a raising from the dead. It's about salvation that's going on here. Both stories offer hope in hopeless situations. And that's why the Old Testament lesson and the New Testament lesson are tied together. It's all about God offering hope in seemingly hopeless situations. And so the text begins, Mark 5, verse 21. 
When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Jesus had returned from the land of the Gerasenes and the demoniacs and the Gentiles to the Jewish side. And he lands and immediately he's met by Jairus. Now, Jairus was an influential man, a ruler in the synagogue. And most of the religious authorities in those days were anti-Jesus. But Jairus goes to Jesus and falls on his face before him. He had to humble himself and implore Jesus regarding his daughter. A humbling kind of experience for an important man. But he also expressed his faith. He didn't say, Jesus, can you come over to my house? And he just said, come, lay your hands on her. that She may be healed and live. He had all the confidence that Jesus could do what he was asking. And Mark just says it so simply, Jesus went. In answer to this man's prayer, Jesus went, as he always does. You got problems? You place them before Jesus? He goes. Meanwhile, we interrupt this story to bring you the breaking story that I have. So, Mark is telling this story, Jesus is on his way, but we interrupt that story to tell you another one. A great crowd followed him, and a throng and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Here was a woman who had suffered much at the hands of many physicians. They'd taken all of her money, but none of them had cured her. This bleeding made her ritually unclean, and so she was treated by everybody like a leper. There was no social contact with anyone for 12 years. And now she knows that if she goes up and touches Jesus, 
If she goes up and even touches the hem of his robe, Jesus would be made unclean. And would that somehow mess up his power to perform the miracle to heal her? She's willing to take the risk, but she doesn't walk up and confront Jesus head on. She slips through the crowd and just touches the hem of his garment. She can't imagine that Jesus would welcome her touch. If I just touch his robes, I'll be made well. That's not just an act of desperation. I believe that's an act of faith. She truly believed Jesus had the power and even touching his robe would enable her to be healed. And Mark, in the way that he so often did, used the word immediately. I think there's 27 times in the gospel where he used the word immediately. To say, this wasn't a slow process of her getting better. Immediately upon coming into contact with Jesus, she's healed. And Jesus sensed that there's, there was power that had gone out from him. And so he asks this question, who touched my robe? Is this like your cell phone? You know, you got three bars, and as, as you use up power, it goes down to two bars and one bar, and then you have to get recharged. Did Jesus lose something by healing this lady? But he knew, he knew that power had gone out from him. He knew that someone in the crowd had touched him. It just seemed ridiculous to the disciples. How can you ask who touched you? There's people pushing all around you. How, how can you pick out just one? Isn't that just like Jesus? He cares about just one. In the midst of all the crowds and all the demands and all the requests that are put upon him, he cares about just one. So he calls out, who touched me? And here's this poor lady. She's healed. But now everybody's looking around to see who's going to fess up to this. And she has to step forward and tell the whole truth. The whole truth. She was the one who had done it. And Jesus turned to her, and she probably expected to be chewed out a little bit at this point. And he greets her with that gentle word, daughter. You're not an outsider. You're not shunned by anybody. You're part of the family, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. Daughter, your faith, sozo, your faith has saved you, is what it really says. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Meanwhile, Jairus is standing there watching this. And imagine this Jewish man tearing his hair out. Lord, this isn't an emergency. That lady could have been healed at any time. My daughter is at the point of death. If you don't come right now, she's going to die. 
Okay, Jesus is still in control. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? There's no hope. It's over and done with. Your daughter has died. It kind of reminds me of Martha's comments to Jesus in the story of the raising of Lazarus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now I know whatever you ask from God, it'll be done. Well, before there had been hope, if you'd have come right then, maybe the girl wouldn't have died. Don't bother Jesus anymore. There's no hope. She's dead. I love verse 36. It's one of my favorites. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. Ignoring what they said, that's hard to do in this world, isn't it? Ignore what other people say, but listen to Jesus. Ignoring what they said, he said, don't fear, just believe. Have you ever said words like that to someone who's really hurting? Don't fear, just believe. I think there are times when we're well-intentioned and we say those words, we don't have any power to do anything about it. But when Jesus says those words, don't fear, just believe. There's power behind them. And he's the one who says those words to us all the time. Don't fear, just believe. And so he takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes on to the man's house. And when they arrive, there is all this wailing going on. Now, they didn't have obituaries in the newspapers in those days to tell people in the community that somebody had died. What they did was hire professional mourners. They got paid to wail. And so they would come into the house and they would wail and tear their hair and rip their clothes and beat their breasts. And they would play flutes terrible dirges, and all of that was going on because everybody in the community knew this girl had just died. The whole town knew it. And Jesus goes into the house and he sees this commotion. And he says, why do you make an uproar and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Was he denying that the, late, the, the little girl was really dead? She was really dead. Jesus had a different view. It's not terrifying. The little girl was asleep. Peaceful, calm. Jesus was there to deal with the issue. And they laughed at him. They ridiculed him. How could you be so stupid? How could you offer these people any false hope in a time like this? Their daughter's dead. Jesus put them all out. Took the mother and father inside, and he just took the little girl by the hand, and he said, Talitha kumi. It's Aramaic. 
Aramaic was kind of uh, related to Hebrew, but it was the, the, the language of the common people that they'd use out on the street, where the Hebrew was what was used in, in the official uh, religious circles. And so he just speaks the language of the common people, the language that this little girl would have heard every day. He took her by the hand and said, little girl, get up. And she got up. And she walked around. And Jesus told her to give, them, give her something to eat. The little girl was 12 years old. She had her future ahead of her. Remember, young girls in those days got married at a very early age. This little girl had her whole life ahead of her as a 12-year-old. It was just starting. Jesus raised her and gave her life and, and gave her a future and gave the, the parents hope. And once again, there's that word immediately in the midst of this story. Immediately. Immediately upon Jesus taking her by the hand, she gets up and she walks. And then there's this odd comment at the end. He strictly charged them that no one should know this. Really? How do, you, how do you keep news like this from going out into the community? The mourners had been there. They'd made the commotion. Everyone in town knew that she was dead. And a few minutes later, she walks out in front of them all. But don't tell anybody about this. Couldn't possibly have kept it to themselves. Why would Jesus say to them, don't tell anybody? He strictly charged them not to tell it. A matter of timing. He would slowly begin to reveal who he was and what he could do to his disciples at, at a point where they could understand and take it all in. And nobody was at that point yet where they really got who Jesus is. And so once again, in a hopeless situation, Jesus takes a little girl by the hand and gives hope and gives life and gives joy to the parents once again. There's no such thing as a hopeless situation for people like you and me. Thoughts or comments about this passage? It's time that we quit then. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.